Hi, I'm Jeff Bova, producer, arranger, keyboardist. You're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jimmy Braylauer. He's a musical jack of all trades. He's a drummer, a drum programmer, producer, mixer, remixer, writer, and mastering engineer. There's nothing this man can't do. He's worked with a who's who in the music business, including Carly Simon, Madonna, Billy Joel, Cindy Lauper, the Bee Gees, and Britney Spears. And he's received Grammys for Record of the Year for his work with Steve Winwood and Eric Clapton. How about that? And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Jimmy and I are going to do a song fest. I've got a few of his best works teed up, and we'll listen to a bit of them, and we'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you know that I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen the song, It's the Beat, from my album, The Queen's Carnival, by my band, Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, Jimmy is all about the drums, and my song is all about the beat. So they go together. So Jimmy Braylauer, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Hey, good to be here. Thanks, Robert. You bet. All right, you got to start off and tell us. You were a drummer, that I understand. But then you went into this thing called drum programming. Okay, why don't you explain that to me and everybody else? I started playing drums like a lot of my friends when we saw the Beatles on TV and played in bands, loved playing in bands. And uh, somewhere around 1980, I got a break playing on one of the earliest rap records, playing drums. It was a hit. And uh, I thought, oh, this is great. Finally, my career is going to start happening. Well, next time we went in the studio, all the guys from that community had this box with them. And it turned out to be this Roland 808, which is like, at this point, a legendary box. But it was a drum machine. You could program beats. And I saw my life flash in front of me, essentially. <laughs> and... um you know, the music I was playing stopped being fun. It started getting more mechanical. Everything, it was like this kismet. Everything started falling into place. And and uh, I got introduced to the Lindrum, which was like a more professional model at the time. It had real drum sounds rather than electronic. And uh, I found from making those records, it was perfect at that moment in time for me. I preferred that to playing drums in a manner that was uncomfortable for me. All right, so wait a minute. I got to stop you. In other words, it wasn't a drum set. You were playing what electronic drums? Is that the way to describe it? Yeah, they were pads. They were buttons at the time, you know. And you hit the button, and it played the sound of a bass drum and a snare drum. 
and you just tap the the pads. You see them all around today. And uh, that was it. It was not in my design career-wise. It was like this moment, but I also happened to be working out of the power station at the time. I was doing some sessions with a friend of mine at what was probably the best studio to be in in New York at that time in the early 80s. All the great artists were recording this, Springsteen, Hall & Oates, Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards were camped out there, the guys from Chic and um, Dire Straits. It's an amazing array, Billy Squire. Everybody, all these guys had their roadies buy every new piece of equipment. They all had this box sitting out in the lounge, but nobody knew how to use it. (laughs) You know, I was looking for a hook. I was at a great studio and I realized, you know what? I can't compete with some of the drummers that were coming in and out of that place at the time. It was just like a real, you know, come to Jesus moment kind of for your career where you have to sort of re-evaluate everything. And uh, it was a perfect segue for me. So let me ask you this. I remember way back when I was playing at a festival and Bella Fleck and the Fleck tones were on the bill. Mm-hmm. a little bit higher up than my band at the time. And if you remember, he had a guy named Future Man that played the drums, but it was the pads, like you were saying. I mean, they sounded like drums, but it was drum pads that he was playing. Is that what we're talking about? Is that the kind of thing that was going on then? That was uh, an extension of these. In other words, the sounds were samples or electronic sounds that you could trigger by hitting either a pad with a stick, which is what you're talking about. Right. They had these big pads where you could play them with sticks and it would trigger sounds from a, a different place. Wasn't the, the pad wasn't making the sound. What I'm talking about was a box. It was like a, a little electronic box that had like a dozen buttons on it. When you hit the button, it made the drum sound. So you tapped on this. It was like, you, I got it. nobody's going to see this, but you just tapped on a little pad and the sound came out of it and it recorded it in the machine and played it back in perfect time. Was this before loops and stuff? Did you have to hit each button at the exact moment that you wanted the sound to come out? Well, you know, you would hear a metronome. See, see, I should back this up a little bit. As a drummer, I love playing in bands. And, you know, Ringo had the line, I am the fucking click, right? There was a point where disco music came along in the mid-70s and it was very metronomic. And so all of a sudden, a click track got introduced into some recording situations where there was a metronome playing and you had to play along. So right. the the tempo was being determined externally, whereas as a drummer in a band, I was used to counting off a song. You know, the tempo was the heartbeat I felt in the room at the time. So it started getting more mechanical and uh, I was uncomfortable playing that way. And it just got worse and worse. So when this box came along and went, oh, this is, this is great. I can play the ideas that I have. It'll come back in perfect time the way everybody wants it. It was just a moment of transition in music making where I had come to the realization that I enjoyed making records more than I did just playing the drums. All right, I get it. So you've gone on to play with so many people I guess using the drum programming, right? Was that your entree to so many of these artists? Yes. Well, they all, you know, most of them were bands. What was happening is in the early 80s, the electronic sounds were becoming in vogue and 
so many artists were exploring and people like Hall and Oates, for example, use them on, uh, I can't go for that. The no can do they use, you know, those are like the beat boxes that were like in, in organs and stuff that were in lounges where these like piano players would play along with these, you know, electronic beats and stuff. So there were some people who were already predisposed, but the studio I worked at power station had a lot of mainstream artists who were going, well, we need the new sound, you know, and I was the guy who was there. You were the new sound guy. You know, it was an accident. It was, it totally was not by design, but you know, most good things happen along the way while you're doing something else. So there's nothing wrong with that. They said, okay, we need that new sound. Let's get this Braylauer guy. But I did wind up playing, you know, with Jim Steinman. I was, you know, playing live stuff and, and machine stuff. It was a combination with some producers. They liked me to play the pads in real time. You know, I was still drumming. But it was it was like, you know, all kinds of weird versions of it. And uh, all I know is I was getting calls from people I never got calls from as a drummer. So it worked out, needless to say. Um, when I hooked up with Niall, he had just finished producing Let's Dance by David Bowie. And uh, he became a real hot hand as a solo producer because most of the stuff he had done was with Sheik, with Bernard Edwards. So... He was having trouble putting two patterns together in his drum machine, and his engineer was was so frustrated, he, he brought me in to show him what I could do. And, and that started out about four or five years of working with him nonstop. And he introduced me to Daryl and John. He uh, I got to work with Duran Duran with him, with Madonna. That was all from a happenstance meeting in the studio. But that was that place. It was an amazing place to be. Right time. It was a heck of a place. Now, did that continue or was there an era that you kind of covered? Well, you know, I mean, part of your intro to me was with the, you know, the dashes between all the things I do. I, I, you have to reinvent yourself. It's almost like an athlete. You have a little window where whatever you're doing can keep your career going. For me, with the drum machine, there was it was probably about six or seven years where I was busy doing nothing but that. But what happened is the technology started getting more affordable for everybody could buy these little boxes that had what were very expensive sounds. Now anybody, you know, almost like came in cereal boxes at that point. So uh, when people would go, well, you know, we could bring in this guy and it's going to cost us how much? Or let's just do it ourselves. It was the beginning of the let's do it ourselves era. Right. Where everybody decided they could do everybody else's job. And, you know, which we're still living in. So I started doing mixing, remixing. I started moving along down the food chain of recording when I realized that trying to maintain something was not as good as becoming the new guy. And I had realized when I did that, I had been playing for years, but all of a sudden you're this new guy. Who is this guy? We got to get him. And I like being the new guy. I can understand that. And to this day, that's become a really, you know, helpful mindset of, of not getting too bogged down and stuff. I do a lot of different things. It's just part of the record making process. So, you know, not to jump ahead, but I, I started my own label at one point. So I was everybody. I had to do everything. You know, what's interesting is that as you were saying, the recording business has evolved over time. Okay, back in the day when they had the four-track machines and they used to splice the tape in order to make an edit, 
I mean, I remember George Martin talking about what it was like to record all those wonderful songs with the Beatles. And they had the four-track machine and he had to take the tape and slice it and then splice it together again. And then he found out, I guess he made uh, EMI get one of the, the newfangled big machines that was eight tracks or something. But technology has always evolved in the recording business. And then it got to a point where people were doing it kind of in their homes, wasn't it? Yeah, me included. One thing really changed when there started being enough tracks where you could split everything out. People stopped doing takes of performances of a bunch of people in a room playing all at once and doing parts one at a time. It started becoming more of an assembly line mindset. Right. And and for me, it's ironic because I got involved very early with this that world of the puzzle making version of recording but there's always something about capturing a moment that makes all those old records so special it's like a moment in time quincy jones said you know you didn't have to ask you just you know how did it feel every you knew when it felt right and it was and it was done today nobody asks how does it feel it's like the only question is not even asked anymore so it's it's a different world isn't that sad though of course of course it is I mean, you know, when you think back to the the Motown records of the 60s, you know, they're recording in this little basement in Detroit. Think about it. This wasn't a real studio. It was a basement. And yet, listen to the sound that they got and the players. Style always counts. You know, the personality is always greater than the technique of, of anything. You know, a great studio that's sonically perfect doesn't necessarily make a great record. It's the people in it and what they're doing. You know, and of course, it all started with a song. You know, I was taught the two things that are most important are the singer and the song, you know, in making a great record. It's just changed, you know, and anyone can do it. And it's great that anybody can do it, you know. But I always say to people, you know, a kid with a baseball bat and a uniform, he's in Little League. You know, he's, you know, he's got all the tools, but he's not a professional. Right. In the music business, anybody who's got a computer is a producer. And and we've sort of, you know, eliminated the the tiers of, of growing into being professional and and, you know, for good and for bad. The good part of it is anybody can do it. But, you know, anybody can take a picture. Anybody, you know, can cook that doesn't make them a professional chef. So the, the hard part for the pros is that they're thrown into the same pot with the guy who's just dabbling in yeah. it. You know, there are no gatekeepers anymore. So. The good thing is that everybody can do it. And the bad thing is that everybody can do it. Well, the the bad thing is that everybody can put it out there. You know, there used to be gatekeepers and say, oh, right. that's not good enough. There's no such thing anymore. You know, so um, when I was doing A&R, used to get tons of, of CDs and cassettes. And there was a garbage can for most of them. That garbage can today is Spotify. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll leave it it's there. It's a worldwide garbage can, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's some really great stuff being done. It's just so hard because, you know, the culture and the technology has changed. We used to, me and my friends used to be able to, you know, come into school the next day and say, hey, did you hear that record? And we all heard the same record on the same radio station. Yep. You know, now everybody gets fed everything so discreetly 
that, you know, it's very hard to reach people en masse today. As much as we have all the tools to do it, it's so individualized that it's, it's really hard to do the same kind of build that we used to. Yes, I totally agree with you. And we've become a Spotify world, and I'm not sure that that's the best answer, but it's way beyond our pay grade. What can I say? You know, you just try and do something great. That's the whole thing. That's all you can do. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. I want to get into some of the great things that you've done. Let's go into that Songfest portion because you've got some wonderful tracks that you've given to me. And the first one we're playing is that Steve Winwood unbelievable track, Higher Love, which just was a renaissance, if you will, for his career back in the 1980s. Tell me about your work with him. I had just met Russ Teitelman, the producer, about six months before. Uh, Niall introduced us, and we did a song with Chaka Khan for a movie called Crush Groove. And we hit it off great. And in the midst of making that track, he mentioned to me, oh, I think I'm doing Steve Winwood's next record. And I, you know, almost fell on the floor. I said, you got to get me on that thing, you know, because... A hero, an absolute hero to me. The thing with Steve was he had made a couple of albums on his own where he did everything. This is a guy who can play every instrument with style and personality and is brilliant. Right. But after a while, you know, you kind of need a little interaction with other people. It's just it's just a one way street pushing out. So the idea was to bring in people who were experts at these various instruments whether it was bass players, guitar players, drummers, myself, and just sort of try and flip his switch a little bit creatively to try and, you know, engage him on his highest level. Because the guy is so brilliant. He could phone it in and he's better than most of us. So 
Russ hooked me up and and sent me some demos. And then I got together with Steve at his apartment in Manhattan for a couple of weeks. And we sort of uh, mapped out the basic ideas form-wise for all of these songs. He had so many ideas on his own drum machine, but he didn't have it with him. So I had to listen to these tapes and A, reconstruct what he had and then B, sort of modify it and change it sonically to, to fill what we were going to do. So I spent about three weeks in a room with him, which was amazing. And then we went in the studio and, and I sort of poured the concrete for that record. I just got it started, really. And um, there were so many amazing musicians who, who came along on that record. But, you know, my job was to get it going. You know what? For me, what was amazing about that record you know, for everybody that doesn't remember, I mean, Steve Winwood was the heart and soul of the Spencer Davis group. Give Me Some Lovin' is one of those great iconic songs of the rock era that little lick he comes up with on the keyboard. And that voice of his at age 16 or something like that, just unbelievable. And then he went on to Traffic, which was one of my favorite groups of all time. But he hit this kind of, I'll call it a fallow period, where he just kind of, he wasn't in the mainstream any longer. And then he comes back with higher love, and it catapults him back into the mainstream. It was a different sound, a different look for him as well. Kudos to you that you were part of that. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. And it's actually the only video I was ever in. I got to play drums in that video with, with Niall and Chaka Khan was in it. And it was, you know, it was it was a great moment. Uh, that was like in 86. And I had a whole bunch of records happening at that moment. That was like kind of a pinnacle moment for the, my programming era. I had uh, a hit with Cindy Lauper with True Colors. And I'll see your true did a song on Peter Gabriel's So album called Big Time, where it was this Frankenstein drum part where Stuart Copeland's hi-hat, Peter would record all different people and then combine the elements the way he wanted them. So it was my bass drum, Stuart Copeland's hi-hat, and Manu Kache's uh, snare drum and cymbals with the drum <laughs> kit on that song. You know, it was a crazy time. It was a crazy time. It was uh, the thing about the programming was that there were no rules. Nobody had invented rules for how to do it. So I was making shit up as I went. And that was really great because, you know, playing drums was, you know, is as Neanderthal as it gets. You're hitting things with sticks. This was all of a sudden I could create soundscapes and, and do all kinds of things that didn't really exist before. So that was what was exciting about it. And the people I worked with were pushing. They say, well, do something we never heard before. Like that was what I got every day. So that's great. All right. The next one I got playing here is something you did with Brian Wilson. You know, one of the greatest artists of the rock era. This is the remastered version of Love and Mercy. I was sitting in a crummy movie with my hands on 
Tell us about this one. Well, I mean, the mastering, it's the same recording. Um, once again, Russ Titleman calls me in. He's He had worked with Brian back in the 60s. And and we got involved with his, if you ever saw the movie Love and Mercy, there's, there's his doctor, Dr. Landy, who basically uh, brought him the back. Crazy guy. You know, Brian was like non-functional and, and Landy got him functioning, but he was keeping him at a place, you know, and there, it was like a scene going on. They were like all the assistants, they were called the surf Nazis. They worked for him, but Brian thought they were his assistants. Anyway, so I get the call to come in to help realize this record where, you know, Brian was creatively functional i mean the guy's a genius unbelievable what working with him and uh so i got the call love and mercy was a song where i actually played a drum machine with my fingers in real time i was like i was playing the drums but i was using the pads to do it and uh it, that was like insane to go through the motions of making a brian wilson track with brian wilson I got to play sleigh bells and shakers and drum tablane drum fill kind of stuff. And uh, what was really hard was that Brian's attention span was kind of not great. And and so he would play a part and then just want to do the next one. It was wasn't always right. So we got called in to capture everything that was done, all of his great ideas, and then clean them up so we could use them. So it was it was a tough record to make, but. It was so amazing because you can count on one hand the people who are in that pantheon of talent. Well, you're right about that. And, and Love and Mercy was, you know, it's kind of the, towards the tail end of his most creative portion of his career, but it was a great record and uh, must have been an amazing thing for you to be working with Brian Wilson. You know, in those days, I got so many calls to work with, you know, they're almost like cartoon characters to me. They're just so iconic. <laughs> You know, and uh, it was it was always difficult because I'm such a fan, but I was also there to do a job, and and I couldn't bring my fanboy to the to the session because if I didn't do something great, I was out. Yeah, I can understand. And so it was it was it was you know it was humbling, but I I was you know in in pretty good form in those days creatively. I knew what I had to do. And because I was inventing stuff along the way, you know, it was it was a big win for me because I knew that I could pull off any anything that was being asked of me. And that's uh, a it's a powerful space to be in. All right. Let's go to the third one. This is something you did with Hall and Oates called Out of Touch. Tell us about this one. I got a call about six months before we made that record to do a song called Say It Isn't So. They they had recorded the song with their band. And there was this break in the middle before they went to the bridge. 
that they didn't know what to do. There was two bars of empty space. It was like a click going on. And they said, we don't know what to do here. And um, Bob Clearmountain was co-producing with them. And uh, this was like one of the first big records I got to work on. So it was pretty intimidating. And I walked in there and I listened to it. And my first reaction was, it's too long. So I said it out loud. I said, it's too long. The next thing you know, speaking of something you mentioned earlier, Clear Mountain gets up the two-inch 24-track tape with a razor blade. And he cuts a bar out of it. He says, okay, it's one bar now. It's like, oh, shit, I got to do something. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I came up with something with all these wacky electronic sounds that I had that totally pulled off the trick. And, you know, they were so happy because they had spent a couple of days trying to figure it out that they had me do some overdubs on it. And at that point, I was in that song went on a greatest hits album. And then six months later, they start a record called Big Bamboom, which was the record that Out of Touch was on. Now they were like huge. Everything they were doing was a smash. And uh, they liked all the new toys. So they had the control room filled up with the latest and greatest synthesizers and gizmos. And the room, the big room where the, you know, the band played was like had a ping pong table in it. You know, <laughs> it was it was the beginning of the, the inverting of the recording session to the, you know, to actually most of it happening inside the control room. So it was it was, you know, one of those moments where, you know, there was like a seismic shift beginning into what you were talking about of having the home recording. You didn't need the big room to make the big record. So uh, out of touch, my friend T-Bone Walk, who was their bass player, I had met him about six years before we played a gig at an Italian restaurant in White Plains, New York, with this singer-songwriter. It was like a piano, a bass, and a drums. We were set up by the dessert cart in this tacky little Italian restaurant where you know, the big request was, could you play softer? That was essentially. <laughs> and, and, and so it was like this moment right before everything started happening. It was like one of these humbling moments. <laughs> where what are we doing here? Uh, but I met T-Bone there. I got him on 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 a on this Curtis Blow record that we did. And then he got me into the Hall and Oates thing. He recommended me. And then, you know, Nile also recommended me. So I wound up in there with those guys. And for about five or six years, I was making every record with Daryl and John. Well, it sounds to me like you were in the right place at the right time. You had this whole drum thing going and the drum programming going. And like you said, you kind of morphed into doing all these other things as well. Fantastic for you. We have been speaking here with Jimmy Braylauer. Jimmy, it's been just a wonderful thing to hear about all of this stuff that you did. You were the front and center at this point in time in the music industry. Good for you. Thanks so much for doing this podcast. Thanks. Good to be here, man. All right. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called It's the Beat. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. 
Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com.